Hey there, everybody. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we rate your favorite animals in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts. More like enthusiasts. Yeah, that's a good word for what we are. (laughs) But we do try to bring the most accurate and relevant information that we can. I have a lot today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) As y'all may have noticed by the title of this week's episode, usually when Christian and I do an episode together, we each have an animal and we each do a segment on it. It usually comes out to around 20 to 30 minutes per animal. But as I was doing my notes this week, I quickly realized that there was absolutely no way (laughs) that I was going to be able to fit everything I want to say about this animal into just one segment. And so Christian has so kindly yielded his time to me, (laughs) (laughs) which I appreciate. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Of course. And it comes at an opportune time with other moving tasks that need to be done. That's true. So I mentioned this uh, last week, but we have successfully found a home in Washington where we will be moving. Uh, People who have listened for a long time may know that we live in Florida currently, but that time has come to an end. We are leaving. We are heading to the Pacific Northwest. So it is a big job (laughs) moving Mm -hmm. a whole family across the entire continent. And as such, that requires a lot of work. So we're pretty swamped with all that. Yep. So as Christian's been, you know, juggling work and preparing for the move and things like that, I've taken on the brunt of note preparing this week. That being said, you know, I've got a few guest episodes that I've already recorded that I'll be, you know, editing and releasing over the next month or so, but our release schedule is going to get a little chaotic. (laughs) Please be a little flexible with, uh, you know, our release schedule. Things probably aren't going to come out exactly, you know, on the right day they're supposed to come out, but uh, we'll probably have a brief hiatus, but we'll be back. Don't worry. We're not going anywhere. We're just moving. (laughs) (laughs) we're not moving anywhere in the podcast spaces right we're not going anywhere we're just going somewhere (laughs) so that's our little housekeeping update uh but for this week i have a lot to tell you excellent i have so much to tell you about well allow me the pleasure of leading you in please what animal will you be speaking about today this week it's the california condor okay which I'm really excited to talk about. Last time I did a whole episode by myself, it was on the turkey. Mm-hmm. So I guess I've just got a thing for like North American birds. <laughs> the California condor's scientific name is Gymnogyps, is how I'm going to say that. Californianus. And the species was submitted most recently by Jake Marr, but also by Sarah Brooks, who sent this in last year. So sorry it took a while to get to it. This is a big job. Talking about this bird is a big job. Big job for a big bird. For a very big bird, yes. (laughs) I'm getting my information from lots of places, including Cornell University's Ornithology Lab, the National Park Service, California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and the Yurok Tribe via their website at yuroktribe.org and their YouTube channel, where they post a lot of information to awesome so as you mentioned this is a very big bird Mm -hmm. in case you have not seen them they're about four feet long but their wingspan can reach up to 10 feet that's pretty big which for our metric buddies is about three meters that's about what what would you say about 12 chickens maybe in wingspan (laughs) chickens have little stubby wings so wingspan wise it's probably quite a few that's about you know a person and a half 
Yeah. They could give your car a great big hug. Uh And uh, as their name would imply, they're found in Central California with small populations in Utah, Arizona, and Baja, California, which is in Mexico. Oh, yes. I remember this confusion before. Yes. So Baja, (laughs) California is in Mexico. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But what we call California is like the state of California. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those darn arbitrary lines. I know. (laughs) Silly borders. (laughs) These uh, condors belong to the taxonomic family Cathartidae, which are New World vultures. So we've talked about this before, how there are two groups of vultures who, oddly enough, are not really related to each other. Mm -hmm. There is Cathartidae includes condors as well as things like turkey vultures and black vultures. So the vultures that you would see here in the Americas, whereas the other group includes things like bearded vultures and Egyptian vultures, which you Mm. talked about before on this show. Yes. So it is weird that the two groups aren't really related because they just look so identical vibes, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Like copied and pasted. They both have the bald head. They both have the kind of like, you know, scavenging off of dead things approach to life. Actually, old world vultures are more related to things like hawks and eagles than they are to our vultures or condors, Mm. even though they look like they would be related, but they're really not. Um, But that's more so because since they occupy similar like niches in their environment. Right. You're not going to find many places without that need of scavengers. Everyone's got dead stuff. Yeah. Everyone needs a garbage man, right? Basically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So since they're doing similar things, they've evolved similar traits because they help them with the same stuff. Right. So it like makes sense that they would turn out the same way Mm because they're trying to do similar stuff. Mm -hmm. Two groups given the same assignment, but not allowed to talk to each other. Right. Like, (laughs) let me me copy your homework a little bit. (laughs) To get into our ratings, if this is your first time ever listening to this podcast, our whole deal is that we rate animals out of 10 in different categories. The first one is effectiveness. This is things built into their body that let them do a good job of the things they're trying to do. Uh, This is a big bird that's trying to fly around and eat dead stuff. It doesn't need to kill stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just eating stuff that's already been killed by something else. So I'm giving the California condor an 8 out of 10. First of all, they have these massive, broad wings that act like gliders. These things are made for soaring, Mm. right? They're not going to be making sharp turns. (laughs) They're not going to be doing these cool acrobatics. Uh These things are made for distance. They're made to get over wide stretches of land. I assume flapping them are pretty energy intensive, so this soaring thing makes sense yeah they they do a lot of just like coasting for long distances if you're ever like watching birds you can usually tell what is like a vulture or i mean a condor um based on like their sort of flight behavior they do a lot of just coasting not a lot of flapping involved with Mm. these if you've been playing tears of the kingdom (laughs) Like I have. (laughs) What you do in Tears of the Kingdom when you need to go up really fast is you set a fire and then you throw pine cones on it to make the fire really big. And then it creates this gust of wind that just goes directly up. And then you get out your glider and you ride that gust of wind up into the sky. That happens in real life. (laughs) 
<laughs> They're called thermals. We've talked about them a couple times on this show. But basically, it's a draft of wind that rises upwards because of like temperature differences on the ground. Mm-hmm. So vultures and other birds that soar a lot will ride these thermal winds up high, high, high into the sky and then just spend a lot of time sort of slowly flying around. Um, they're not really going for speed. They're more just going for distance. Because mm. if you think about it, they, their dinner's not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you chasing? Nobody. <laughs> you know, zombie movies never touch on how confused the vultures must be. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I thought we had an understanding. <laughs> now this is just the worst. <laughs> When when vultures watch zombie movies, that's the true horror. <laughs> Imagine that your cheeseburgers just like sprout legs mm-hmm. and start running away from you. Yeah. So, but they do have excellent eyesight, which lets them see the dead things from up where they are, as opposed to smell. So, turkey vultures, which are other New World vultures, they rely on like a really really keen sense of smell. But I think that's more so because they're having to fly around over like forests and like densely sort of like covered areas Mm -hmm. so they have to smell things they're not always going to be able to see things but condors you usually see them in kind of like more arid like mountainy sort of areas so they're going to be able to see what they're looking for i bet there's a huge a much bigger contrast between a living and a dead thing versus what it looks like from Mm, that distance right right. (laughs) well i i think if you're gonna be spending most of your life with your like face buried in rotting flesh it's probably a good thing that you don't have a super strong sense of smell but just enough like just enough (laughs) it's probably a good idea that they're not super good at smelling Mm. uh, the things that they're (laughs) sort of neck deep in Mm. Mm. (laughs) it's kind of long been believed that the bald featherless head uh, seen in lots of vultures prevents them from getting gunked up with blood and guts it's Mm -hmm. supposed to be sort of a hygienic adaptation which makes sense but more research suggests that it's actually acting as a heat sink the wrinkliness of it increases surface area, right? And then it's bald, so it lets the blood vessels under the skin be really well exposed to the air. It lets the blood in their head cool down, which makes a lot of sense for these birds because they live in really hot areas. So it's not just a lack of feathers, but also a general wrinkliness that wouldn't otherwise be there. Right. Actually, it's similar to what you see in the turkey, right? Like okay. it's, it's a lot of blood that circulates really close to the surface and lets it cool off. And that makes sense, because I guess when you see pictures of birds without feathers that usually have feathers they don't look all wrinkly like that oh like the feathers have been removed or lost because of a medical condition or whatever yeah you see this in like captive parrots a lot of times will will, like over preen so Mm -hmm. they'll take out a lot of their feathers yeah it doesn't look intentional it looks more like you know shrink wrapped i guess i guess what i'm getting at is i guess i assumed all birds might look all that wrinkly if under their feathers but it sounds like that's not necessarily the case correct yeah if you look at pictures of like parrots that have like Mm -hmm. taken a lot of their feathers off they do not look like that they don't have that wrinkly baggy appearance whereas in vultures it's intentional (laughs) sure they're meant to look that way because it helps them cool off okay it's unsightly perhaps for people, uh-huh. but it helps them out. Uh, but another thing that helps them eat with rotting flesh is having the stomach for it. Mm-hmm. You need a very high constitution score to be eating decaying flesh because decaying tissue is teeming with bacteria, right? The bacteria is what's doing the decomposing. So it's it's full of just bacteria that's like a natural part of the decomposition process. Mm-hmm. But also if something killed that animal, like if a disease 
or a bacterial infection or something like that killed that animal, then like the body is going to be full of that stuff, right? So if you're going to be flying around eating dead stuff, right. you don't want to get what killed that thing. Sure. And with the bacteria you're talking about, it's also the toxins that the bacteria create like yes. as part of the process, which that's a big reason why you can't just take rotting flesh and cook it and then it's suddenly okay for you to eat. Yeah, no, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> that might kill the bacteria, but all the other byproducts are still there. Right. So if you're something that is specializing on eating things that are already dead, mm -hmm. then you have to be prepared to encounter things like that. You can't eat it once, right? Like you can eat anything once, yeah, but they sure. have to be able to eat it a bunch of times and not die. <laughs> so this is where I mentioned to you earlier that I kind of accidentally fell down a little bit of a rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And that's because I stumbled into some scientific... I'm going to politely call it back and forth. Okay. <laughs> so I keep seeing a lot of different sources of information talk about vultures in general. I'm, I, I'm talking about condors, but I'm generalizing more to vultures in this case, having very acidic stomachs mm. and that that's like why they're able to eat things because the acid in their stomach is so strong, stronger than battery acid, you know, like extremely acidic stomachs to break down and neutralize all this bacteria and pathogens and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But then I found this other paper a few years after the paper that kind of gets cited the most about this that said, well, actually, we checked. <laughs> we went out and checked the acidity of a bunch of vulture stomachs, and it's actually not that much more acidic than other bird stomachs. It's like normal for what you would expect to see in like domestic fowl and non-scavengers and stuff. Hmm. So like there's this one paper that's like, Oh, we think that it's that they're able to do all this stuff because they have extremely low pH in their stomach, but they didn't check for pH. They just checked for like bacterial load. They just kind of guessed. And they were like, it must be because of the stomach acidity. <laughs> so they checked acidity and they were like, it's not that. Uh, but the, the fact remains that like they're still able to eat a bunch of stuff. So the big question is why? Like what is allowing them to eat all of this like extremely harsh, extremely caustic food and not die from it? Okay. So there are kind of thoughts out there that it might be because of their microbiome, mm. which is the community of bacteria that naturally lives inside their stomach. Right. We all have microbiomes. Like we, you have bacteria in your gut right now. It's fine. It's doing its job. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. It could be out competing with harmful bacteria. Mm -hmm. So it could be just like eating up all the nutrients in your gut and making it so that harmful bacteria can't survive there or could just be outright destroying that bacteria. It could also be a genetic thing that gives them a really strong immune system. Everybody says that they have acidic stomachs. And then I found a paper from a guy who's a vertebrate zoologist at the Smithsonian. So I think he knows what he's talking about. And he said it's not the stomach acid. This was the point where I was like, I'm in too deep. Pull me out. I can't. <laughs> I need to move on. <laughs> so that is all still being studied. Like sure. the, the how they're able to digest the stuff is still kind of right. under question but the fact remains that they can. Right. It most certainly falls within effectiveness, whatever it is. That's what I'm thinking. Yes. <laughs> so the point is that they're able to digest harmful pathogens like bacteria. And the reason this is so important is that if there's something like a disease that's being spread among a population that's like the result of bacteria or something like that, when that animal dies of that disease, 
and a vulture or a condor comes along and eats that body, their body is breaking down that pathogen and removing it from the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So it's not seeping back into the soil that's then growing into plants and then a new animal comes along and eats the plants and then it's not recycling. Oh. So like this pathogen gets stopped there. It doesn't recirculate. It, it doesn't get passed on through the bird's waste product. Right. Like the bird's stomach is able to like break it down, neutralize it. The buck stops here. Huh. So it's a really important way that like scavenging birds are able to put a stop to like pathogen cycles in an ecosystem. A lot of people talk about, you know, like the the important work that vultures do in just like breaking down dead decaying tissue Mm -hmm. but it's more than that it's like preventing diseases from propagating in a population Mm -hmm. in fact uh, vultures are even the limiting factor in outbreaks of diseases like anthrax uh, which is actually caused naturally by bacteria in soil so vultures can digest that bacteria and disrupt anthrax outbreaks wow yeah i was reading an article about how like a bunch of hippos died of anthrax and then vultures came and ate the hippo bodies, and then that kind of like put a stop to the anthrax outbreak. You know, I guess I never realized that anthrax was a bacteria. I think we've only ever really like heard of it in like poison, yes. you know, like a sort of like a biochemical warfare agent. I, I have very specific memories as a young child where there was a scare around Halloween yes, time. I, I also remember the anthrax <laughs> scare. Yeah, yes. that was that was really scary. That was a really scary time in history. I remember mm-hmm. it very clearly. But yeah, anthrax is like a disease that just happens, but vultures are a great counter to anthrax because they can break down the bacteria that causes it. Huh. Yeah. When they do find a large carcass, they do eat as much as they can physically fit in their body to the point that they cannot fly for a while afterwards. Mm, same, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so condors like if they can, if they find something big enough and condors being these massive birds they can break apart really large carcasses so mm-hmm. if a huge animal has died then condors can kind of break it up into smaller chunks so that smaller scavengers are mm. able to like more easily eat it which is pretty cool but they also have a crop like before their stomach that basically acts as like an inventory slot expansion <laughs> lets them like tuck a bunch of food away uh-huh. and then like i'll digest this later so they can kind of like gorge themselves and then get by for a longer time without having to find another meal mm. I guess, like, they're already used to eating yeah. rotting, decaying stuff, so they don't have to worry about it going bad, right? <laughs> What's the shelf life? So, no one cares. <laughs> infinite. Infinite shelf life. <laughs> it's good forever. <laughs> Since they are, you know, kind of the biggest scavenger, they're kind of top dog at any carcass they roll up to, right? Like, who's going to scare them away? Nobody. They're, they're like, the biggest... You know, scavenging bird. There, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but they are the largest flighted bird in North America. Oh, um, when you're talking about like birds that you'd see over land, like oh, there's okay. larger birds out in the sea, like off the coasts and stuff. Mm-hmm. But they're really the only bird that you're going to be seeing at these like carcasses on land. But there are some exceptions. Eagles. Eagles are not as big as condors. But the thing is, since condors aren't necessarily like hunters, they don't have to kill prey. So their beaks and their talons are actually kind of like short and blunt compared to what you'd see in other birds of prey. Like they're they're not that threatening. They're more for grip. They're just for picking stuff up, right? They, yeah, they don't yeah, care yeah. about killing things. But eagles, like golden eagles and bald eagles, they are completely armed to the teeth. They have these like vicious, long, sharp, hooked talons and claws. So actually, an eagle could scare off a condor. 
So sometimes you'll see a condor that is chased off by an eagle. Even though they don't necessarily have the size advantage there, they have sharper knives. <laughs> now, does it have to be a fresh kill for an eagle to go after it? Or are they also scavenging pretty long dead things? You know, based on what I know about bald eagle scavenging behavior, mm -hmm. it could be a McDonald's dumpster and it wouldn't matter <laughs> to bald <laughs> eagles. Okay. They have a reputation for like, I've heard about this when people go to Alaska to mm. see bald eagles. They expect to see them in these like majestic sweeping mountain landscapes. And they're like, where can I go to see the beautiful majestic bald eagle in action? And they're like, ah, go to this dumpster behind McDonald's <laughs> and you'll see about 30 bald eagles. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think they're really picky about their carcasses. Okay. <laughs> so that was one sort of like deduction I gave them for effectiveness and that like they can be bullied a little bit mm. by some of the more raptory birds of prey. Okay. Uh, but I also did give them a deduction because while they do have a really long lifespan, which is over 50 years, possibly up to 60 or maybe even 70 this also means they have a very long time between generations. Mm. Um, they don't mature and start reproducing until they reach about six years old. And even then, a female condor only produces one chick every two years. Okay. Unless she loses that egg and she might lay another one to replace it. But it's like one chick every two years. So very, very slow reproductive rate of condors, um, which makes their population really vulnerable to environmental factors or things that cause them to die faster than they can give birth. Sure. More on this later. This is like the entire second half of my entire <laughs> episode here. Just remember that. I will. We'll come back to it. Uh, this brings us to ingenuity for the California condor, which is behaviors, things that the animal is actually doing to maybe solve problems that they face or thrive in their environment. I'm giving them an 8 out of 10. And the bulk of what I'm talking about here is parenting. Hmm. California condors take parenting very seriously. Uh, they build their nests in safe places like cliff caves or even in the trunks of sequoia trees, Aww. which I feel like that feels like such a quintessentially California scene. You know what I mean? Like yeah. a, a redwood tree with condors in it. <laughs> <laughs> feels like you'd see that on a postcard. You know what I mean? I would hope so. Yeah. Uh, so both parents take turns incubating the egg in shifts. We love egalitarian parents. Mm. Um, and then after the chick hatches, they spend about six months regurgitating food for the baby. Okay. After that, they spend another year teaching the chick how to forage and survive. They're just really doting, hardworking parents. They take it very seriously. I guess we've seen those before. Where small litter sizes with lots of energy put into parenting. Yes. If an animal is investing a lot of resources and a lot of energy into their young, they won't have very many of them at a time mm -hmm. because you just can't afford to have that many at a time. But they're sinking a lot into each offspring. So they have to like take a long time right. in between them. But this brings me to a story. This story is from literally this month, like a couple weeks ago. Oh. Yeah, this is hot off the press. This mm. is a fresh article in Audubon Magazine by Zoe Gruskin, which I think really just highlights the sort of relentless dedication of the condor parent. And I'm going to paraphrase this article. It's a great article. I'll have a link in the episode description. I'm just going to kind of summarize it. So in March of this year, there was an outbreak of the avian flu which wreaked havoc on the California condor population in Arizona, which is already a pretty small population. 
One of the California condors who died of avian flu was a female who left behind an egg which was being incubated alone by her mate because she died of the flu. He was so dedicated to keeping the egg safe and warm that he refused to leave the nest even for food and water after she died. Hmm. Conservationists who had been monitoring the condors noticed that like he was at risk. He was not doing great. And he was not leaving. Like He was not going to go take care of himself because he was staying behind to incubate this egg. So they realized that if he kept this up, he was going to die. And then the egg would also die. Like the chick would not survive without a, without any parents. So they had to orchestrate an egg napping Aww. because they couldn't lose two. They couldn't lose him and the, the viable right, egg. Right. So they had to do something. They had to intervene. Normally, biologists would not intervene, but California condors are a very special case, uh-huh. which I'll explain later. But in this situation, it was they needed to step in. So once the male had stepped away from the nest just enough to stretch his wings, they snuck in to the cave where his nest was. Mm-hmm. They took the egg, they rushed it to a wildlife clinic where they incubated it, but that's not the end of the drama for this little baby chick. So the chick starts to hatch. She's backwards in the egg, and she's hatching out the wrong end of the egg. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't either, but apparently (laughs) there's a specific end they're supposed to hatch out of, and she was backwards. So she was flipped around, and she couldn't break through the shell on her own. She was like starting to chip away at it, but she just couldn't do it, and she was running out of air inside the egg. So they were like, we need to help her out. So the veterinarian had to use surgical tools to peel the shell away like those stupid TikTok lives we keep getting. (laughs) I definitely don't spend 20 minutes watching. (laughs) That's why we keep getting them is because you keep watching them. (laughs) (laughs) These TikTok lives where people just like peel the eggs off of shells. But without breaking the membrane. Without breaking the membrane, yeah. Yeah. It's a very specific process. I don't know why we keep getting shown them, but we do. (laughs) But that's exactly what they do. They they peel away the egg to let this little baby condor hatch out of her egg. So they have to keep her separate from the other condors uh, until she's able to be placed with fosters because they have to test her for avian flu first because her mother died of it. Right. So they have to make sure she didn't get it from her mother. Yes, she's quarantined. So they have to quarantine her, but they also have to make sure she doesn't imprint on humans while she's quarantined, because then she's not going to be able to thrive. Mm -hmm. So you know what they did? I I think I'm familiar with this part of it. They put in her incubator a stuffed condor. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It was like a stuffed animal, like a decorative stuffed condor that they had in their office that they'd been given as a gift. (laughs) And they put it in the incubator with her. So that she would snuggle with it and not imprint on humans. This is sounding like a montage prologue to a Pixar movie. Isn't it? It's so (laughs) cute. She ended up being fine. Okay. She was not positive for avian flu. She got placed with foster parents. There was even more drama where, like, the foster parents already had a chick, but they were the best foster parents for her, so they swapped out the foster parents' chicks for her and had to put their chick with a different foster. It was a whole mess. And (laughs) the end result is a happy ending for everybody, though. Well, what happened to the original dad? He's fine. Okay. Yeah, he's fine. They managed to get him to eat, I guess? Yeah, so as soon as they removed the egg from the nest, he, you know, saw that there was no egg there, and he went off to 
live his life. I don't know why I thought this, but I thought this was an Indiana Jones type situation. (laughs) (laughs) He swapped it with a different egg. (laughs) Or like a fake egg or something. I was like, he's still going to sit there and die. Why would you do that? That makes way more sense. Yeah, so they took the egg out of the nest and he flew off and did his own thing. And he's fine. Oh, oh, that sucks. Anyway, I'm hungry. (laughs) You think he like snapped out of it? He's like, what am I doing? I gotta go eat. Yeah, so the story has a happy ending. The chick and her father survived and are doing well. And if everything goes smoothly, uh, the baby will be released into the wild next year. All right. So, that was all this month. So the, the avian flu outbreak was in March. So sure. this has all hap- taken place over the last, like, two or three months. Hmm. Yes. Fascinating. Wild ride. So I even have more to say. <laughs> all right. So dedicated, in fact, are condors to reproducing that female condors may opt to DIY the entire process. No male required. Okay. In 2021, the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance released a statement reporting startling results of routine genetic analysis on California condors in their managed breeding program that showed two male condors that had been hatched in 2001 and 2008 were both not biologically related to any male condor. And only to one female. Mm, okay. And it makes sense that they would have a genetic profile of the entire condor population. Yes. So they can, <laughs> they know for sure that they're not related to any male California condor, uh-huh. only to one mother, which represents the first documented instance of parthenogenesis in California condors. Fun. You know how delighted I am to talk about parthenogenesis. Mm -hmm. This is the process of reproducing with only one parent. We've talked about it before on the show. Uh, The Amazon molly is a species of fish made entirely of clones that reproduce by parthenogenesis. This is more common in reptiles. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, so you see it in snakes that are kept in like zoos and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, famously, the New Mexico whiptail lizard, Happy Pride Month, mm-hmm. uh, the lesbian lizard, an entire species of lizard made up of females who reproduce by parthenogenesis. Maybe mammals are just the odd ones out. It seems to be. That's like, why not us? <laughs> like, why didn't we get it? Anecdotal evidence suggests at least one case of parthenogenesis. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> Parthenogenesis is not unheard of in birds, but prior to this instance, it had only been documented in domesticated birds like turkeys and pigeons. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. Scientists were only able to notice this instance because we have genetic profiles for every California condor that exists. (laughs) So we were able to check, right? Like, how often is this happening that we just don't know, right? Because, like, we obviously don't have eyes on them 24-7. Right, and then most populations we wouldn't be able to either. Right, so like this could be happening way more than anybody knows about. This just we happen to notice this time, mm-hmm. and that happened years ago. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and we just didn't notice until now that we've like ran the genetic test and checked. Now you might be thinking this could be a good sign, like that if a bird that is in such few numbers can reproduce without a partner, that could be like a good long term thing. Uh, But it doesn't actually necessarily represent a viable strategy for long-term repopulation because, well, first of all, the male chicks that were born by parthenogenesis, they died really young. One of them died at the age of two. One of them died at the age of eight, which is really young for condors. Right. So they didn't 
do great, but it's not really clear whether that's related to like a genetic issue or something. Mm -hmm. They just didn't seem to survive that long. But more importantly, due to the chromosomes of birds, parthenogenesis can only produce male birds. Hmm. This was explained really well in a Twitter thread by one of my mutuals, uh, biology professor Emily Taylor, who is on Twitter as at Snakey Mama. And Emily wrote that birds have Z and W chromosomes, kind of like how we have X and Y. Mm -hmm. Birds have Z and W. But whereas in humans, the XX chromosomes produce a female human, like you have to have two of the same chromosome. In birds, it's the other way around. Having two of the same chromosome, the ZZ makes a male bird. Mm -hmm. If you have ZW, you get a female bird. So in parthenogenesis, when the egg cells divide, they get rid of the W chromosome and the Z duplicates, giving you ZZ, which will only produce a male bird. That bird would have to then go on to like reproduce with other females or if they get really creative with their family tree, <laughs> like if they get like real flexible about their family sure. tree. But in the long run, it's not like you can produce multiple generations just by parthenogenesis. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily helpful. It's just interesting, I guess. It's just I mean, neat. <laughs> I, it seems like a good mechanism for a population to get past a temporary cause of breeding problems. Right. Like maybe there's no males around. We got to make some our own, right? Or like, some sort of shortage of... Uh, habitat food something that, yeah. that that will resolve itself with time such yeah. that this will get them through that lull and then be able to do a more uh standard breeding approach interestingly it seemed like like something they mentioned in the paper was that this didn't seem to be prompted by like a lack of available mates oh like there were males around for them to mate with and they may have even like done mating behaviors hmm. it's just that the the chicks just weren't didn't receive any genetics from a male hmm. All Very right. interesting stuff. <laughs> hey there, it's time for a quick break to hear from our friends on the Maximum Fun Network. When we get back, we are talking aesthetics and conservation for the California condor, so stay tuned. All right, class, tomorrow's exam will cover the extinction and de-extinction of the dodo, PowerPoint as an art form, and the history of Eurovision. Any questions? Uh, yes, you in the back. Uh, what is this? It's the podcast Let's Learn Everything, where we learn about science and a bit of everything else. My name's Tom. I study cognitive and computer science, but I'll also be your teacher for intermediate emojis. My name's Caroline, and I did my master's in biodiversity conservation, and I'll be teaching you intro to things the British Museum stole. My name's Ella. I did a PhD in stem cell biology, so obviously I'll be teaching you the history of fan fiction. Class meets every other Thursday on Maximum Fun. So do I still get credit for this? <laughs> no. <laughs> obviously not. No. It's a podcast. <laughs> hey. Let us guess. You love books, but wish you had more time to read. Or maybe you used to read a lot, but life has gotten in the way. Kids, grad school, you name it. Maybe you don't know where to start and bookish social media is overwhelming. How do people on TikTok read so many books? Oh my God, I don't know. And maybe you've been reading the same book for six months and now it's permanently attached to your bedside table. Maybe you don't even know what you like to read anymore. We're reading glasses and don't worry, we got you. We'll get you back into reading and help you enjoy books again. Reading Glasses, every week on Maximum Fun.
The last category that we rate animals on is aesthetics. <laughs> now listen, I'm going to I'm going to breeze past this one because I'm being harsh. I'm giving them a 4 out of 10. The California condor is like I think one of the least cute vultures. What would the score be if you excluded the head? It's still just like a giant like black bird. There's not like a lot visually interesting going on there, I guess. Okay. But the head is just so much to deal with. It's so pink and fleshy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's not what I it's not what I look for in a bird. <laughs> I think <laughs> I will say the feather boa that they're wearing because they so they have this sort of like mane around mm-hmm. their neck of these long black feathers that gives them this very like luxurious uh devil wears prada sort of like meryl streep energy uh-huh. that it's putting in a lot of work it's doing a lot it's not enough but <laughs> but it's a lot <laughs> can i take you on a tangent yeah did you, did you ever see that old looney tunes about i think we're vultures about uh, the, this was where the the song about bringing home a baby bumblebee was famously used in oh i know that song but i've i didn't know it was from something it was just a little well song. i don't know if it's from that but that that's where i knew it from oh sure my, my next question was gonna be if you had if you were familiar with it i wonder if it was based on the the california condor let's see condor cartoon i'm gonna google it Ew. I mean, yeah, you'll see condors depicted in, like, cartoons of, you know, the West, right? Right, and they, they like to do that a lot in the Looney Tunes, right? With the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would imagine that. Or, like, buzzards, right? Mm-hmm, like, But mm-hmm. I don't think they're cute. That's okay. They don't have to be cute, right? Like, they can be yeah. the way that they are, and I don't have to think they're cute to, to find them, like... A very amazing and valuable animal. That basically, like, yes, I don't think they're that cute, but I also think that's okay. Yes. <laughs> they don't have to be. This brings us to what is usually our final sort of wrapping up segment, but mm-hmm. for this bird is really kind of the bulk of okay. what I wanted to talk what about. What is normally the garnish is now the main course. It is the main course, yes. <laughs> this is conservation for the California condor. They are critically endangered. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just walk you through the whole California condor story, uh, starting with the Ice Age. So back in the Ice Age, condors ranged all across the continent. They even reached uh, the East Coast. They were found in Florida and New York. Uh, And this is because during that time, North America was covered in megafauna, which means giant animals, right? There were mammoths and glyptodonts and ground sloths, like tons of animals that were huge, which meant that when they died, there was lots of food around for condors to eat. Mm -hmm. So you get these massive condors all over the continent. After the Ice Age, those megafauna species die off. They go extinct. There's not as much around for condors to eat. So they become kind of restricted to the West Coast, Hmm. where you could still see them all the way up into British Columbia, you know, all along the Pacific Coast. That's where you can see them historically. Mm -hmm. So that's where they are when Europeans arrive which is never a good sign. That's never when good stuff happens. Europeans were devastating to condor populations. So not only did they actively hunt condors, a lot of times there was an assumption that they were also like killing livestock, right? So you might wrongfully try to like preemptively scare them away from your livestock. So they'd actively kill them. They'd also take their eggs for food. As you can imagine, it's a large egg, right? They also uh, just decimated populations of large prey items. 
right? You hear this when uh, Europeans come yeah. into an area, there go, you know, bison and elk and moose and things like that, right? Like, yes. You see declining populations of large animals that condors rely on to eat. So over time, they become restricted to the mountains of Southern California. In 1967, they were listed as a critically endangered species when it was illegal to harm them directly, but they faced bigger environmental problems. Poisoned carcasses were often put out as bait for coyotes. Farmers or people like that would want to deter coyotes from eating their animals, so they would put out poisoned carcasses. Have you heard of this happening before? Not specifically, but I've heard it happening in other ways and places, I suppose. Yeah, they would put out poison as bait, and then condors would eat that get poisoned and die yeah also uh lead contamination is huge like lead fragments that are found in just like everything bullets lead ammunition right would if hunters like shot an animal with lead bullets then the Mm. condors would get lead poisoning from eating those carcasses but also like just things like hazards in their habitat like wires right like if there's giant electrical wires everywhere and condors are massive birds with huge wings they get tangled up in wires and they they strike like structures and right not super maneuverable no and yeah they they really struggle with like because they're so used to these sort of wide open expanses they're not Mm -hmm. used to having to navigate these tight spaces around human made structures so things are going very very poorly for condors they are dying faster than they can reproduce Mm -hmm. so there's a huge decline in their numbers and they just can't recover because of how slowly they reproduce, like I talked about earlier. By 1982, there were 22 California condors left in the world. Wow. That's 22 living members of this species. Not like in the wild, not in captive. That's 22 in the world. At this sort of low point, this is where I really want to emphasize like how much that means that they're functionally extinct in the wild. There's only 22 of them left. So in addition to like we talked about earlier, like they play a really important role in sort of purifying the ecosystem by like filtering out toxins and decomposing pathogens and stuff like that. But in addition to that, like there's also a really important cultural element to it. Like it's culturally devastating. Condors are really important to the people that are indigenous to the Pacific coast, mm-hmm. um, who they've like lived in the shadows of these birds for thousands of years, right? So like condors play a role in like their origin stories mm-hmm. and cultural practices and things like that. So I really wanted to focus on, so the Yurok tribe is an indigenous tribe in Northern California that has been doing a lot of work, not just like conserving the condor but like putting a lot of their information out there for people like it's easy to get right you can go on youtube and watch videos from the yurok tribe so i wanted to read this this is from a testimony of the yurok tribe before the senate committee on indian affairs regarding the yurok tribe's california condor reintroduction program and this was an address to the senate given in february 27th of 2019 this was by Tiana Williams Clausen, who is the lead biologist for the Yurok Tribe Wildlife Program. I'm I'm reading what was like written in the Senate like document, but this is like the address that she delivered to the Senate committee. Hmm. She says 
Praganish, which is the Yurok word for the California condor, says Praganish was one of the first people of the world and one of the most powerful beings in Yurok cosmology. He is a sacred spirit, a scavenger who never partakes of killing or violence. Instead, he takes directly and transforms it back into life, the purest form of renewal. This combined with his ability to fly the highest equipped him as the messenger to carry Yurok prayers to the heavens to be received by the creator. As such, he figures prominently in the Yurok concept of world renewal, the Yurok reason for being, and is integral to our world renewal ceremonies, our highest ceremonies. The Yurok people have been critically affected by the overall loss of Condor across the landscape, as he has not soared the skies over Yurok ancestral territory in over a century. While the Yurok people carry on without Condor, our ceremonies are impacted by not having him to gift us his feathers, critical for use in important regalia, and by not having him in our skies to carry our prayers. Interviews with Yurok culture bearers emphasize that Yurok are a part of the system, integral to it, and inseparable from it, thus the inability to engage with traditional ecological community members like the Condor limits our capacity to be Yurok. In the same address to the Senate, the chairman of the Yurok tribe performed a song in honor of the Condor that's Mm. really, really beautiful. It's a really moving statement for her to give to the Senate, but also to like hear them deliver a song that is really moving and so closely tied to this like animal is it's a it's a really great thing to watch. Hmm. So I feel like that kind of highlights how dire things are like for the human element too. like this is why this issue gets taken so seriously because a lot of times animals reach the brink of extinction and then nothing really gets done about it until it's too late because it takes humans caring about it to get something done about it, right? Right. Humans care very deeply about the condor. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service knew that they had to do something drastic to save the species because they were not going to make it without human help. They weren't going to make it on their own. So they literally put all their eggs in one basket. Mm. From 1983 to 1987, captured every single California condor in existence. Hmm. They caught everyone that existed at the time, brought them into captivity, and placed every ounce of hope for the species survival into the captive breeding program. Hmm. So what this entailed was in the captive breeding program, eggs were removed from the parents as soon as they were laid. This would prompt the mother to thinking she had just lost that egg Mm. and she'd lay another one to kind of replace it. So this meant that in one breeding season, a female condor could lay two or three eggs instead of just one. Mm -hmm. So they're like doubling and tripling the sort of like reproductive capability of a female condor. And then they would have to like incubate the egg, care for it with 
with condor puppets. Yeah, that's the that's the one I'm familiar with. Yes, so the ones that they because they were now producing more condor chicks than they had parents to care for them. Right. So they would have to raise them by hand with these puppets and take care of them and just make sure that they were like being raised in a safe environment where the chicks would actually make it to adulthood because that was a huge problem, mm-hmm. right? Like the chicks that were that were hatching just weren't making it. So they put a ton of effort into making sure that they were producing more chicks than before, but also making sure the chicks made it. And in 1992, they began re-releasing the captive-bred condors into the wild. Wow. So they start actually getting condors to adulthood and letting them fly free because they had taken such good care to make sure they weren't like imprinting on humans and making sure they were still like learning from each other and raising each other and like developing natural condor skills. Mm-hmm. As of 2021, there were 527 California condors alive, uh, with 334 of them flying free in the wild. Wow. Which is an enormous, like, you know, an astronomic turnaround from being down to only 22. In fact, in May of 2021, San Francisco resident Shauna Lynn posted a tweet, including photos, saying, quote, Over the weekend, <laughs> about 15 California condors descended on my mom's house and absolutely trashed her deck. Wow. <laughs> Says they still haven't left. It sucks, but also this is unheard of. There's only 160 of these birds flying free in the state, and a flock of them decided to start a war with my mom. It's like 10% of the local <laughs> population just rolls up. <laughs> It's funny that you say that because that is almost word for word the exact next sentence I have in my notes. <laughs> it's so weird that we're so ingrained into each other's brains. That the, I'm going to read you verbatim sure. the, the next sentence I had written. This lady had 5% of the wild population of the entire species roll up to her doorstep. Yeah. <laughs> It had to be personal, right? Like, what did she do to incur their wrath? Someone that maybe lived there before. So the thing is, the place where her house was Mm -hmm. is like natural condor range. Oh. Like, that's what they would be doing normally. It's just her house happens to be there. Maybe it's a compliment. I don't know. (laughs) I guess. We like this. I mean, in the in the pictures, the deck is like unusable. They had like knocked over railings because these are massive birds, right? And they're perching <laughs> on your deck rail, so the railings are falling over. Furniture is broken. There's a thick blanket of bird oh, yeah. poop on the entire house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's carnage for this lady's house. She did have an appreciation for it, though, right? She didn't try to scare them away. She didn't try to mess with them. Right? She actually like contacted local like conservation organizations like made sure they could come monitor the birds actually because all of these birds come from a captive program they all have tags on them but for california condors because they're so massive and they fly up so high they don't have those tiny little bird bands on their ankles oh they have giant placards with huge (laughs) numbers that are like straddled on their wings so that when the condor is flying above oh. you from the ground you can look up with like binoculars or something and read the number on their wings like airplanes they, you know what they look like they look like the the table numbers at a restaurant oh <laughs> <laughs> like it's heartwarming to see like it sucks that it happened to that person but it is heartwarming to see you know a whole flock of condors just maybe the, the local community came together and helped her out when they left i did see a gofund me 
me. I did see that her daughter, which was the one that posted the tweet, had made a GoFundMe. They called her Condor Mom. They said, help Condor (laughs) Mom clean up the Condor mess. (laughs) At least there didn't seem to be any hard feelings. I think she understood, like, yes, this is an annoyance and a frustration, but this is also a great thing that's happening. Like, it's great that there are this many. Well, that's good. Yeah. Not everyone would take that approach. No, they wouldn't. I Can you imagine? I'd be so happy if that happened to me. <laughs> you're gonna catch me outside when we when we live out west. You're gonna see me like plant carefully planting, like <laughs> leaving like dead rotting carcasses out on our back porch. <laughs> no, get out of here. Go. Hey, hey. <laughs> you keep. You'd have to keep a pretty big spray bottle around. <laughs> Super soaker. <laughs> So, you know, that's kind of a heartwarming note to wrap up on because the road to recovery for condors is a long one, but efforts are ongoing both by the United States government and by indigenous communities Mm -hmm. like the Yurok tribe. So they are actually leading a Northern California condor restoration program that is working to reintroduce condors to Northern California with hopes to eventually bring them back even to the Pacific Northwest. Awesome. Was there any chance for us to have seen them while we were in the Monterey Bay area? Actually, specifically in the Pinnacles. Uh, In the Pinnacles National Park, there are some wild birds, um, some wild California condors that I really wanted to see when we were there that I knew going in was not likely. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're also hard to miss. You know, like if they are flying around near you, you're going to see them, right? They eclipse the sun. These things are (laughs) massive. You're going to see them if they're nearby. They just, we weren't anywhere near you know, where we would have been able to see any. We weren't there for too long either. <laughs> no, we... <laughs> it was hubris. <laughs> we flew, That's okay. We flew way too close to the sun on that but, one. <laughs> but the, the views we got in that short time were very nice. I'm still very glad we went. I don't regret having made the attempt at hiking <laughs> in the Pinnacles. We had a nice time. We had a pleasant little picnic. Yeah. At the foot of the mountain that we could not climb. <laughs> <laughs> well... The A for effort is in us knowing when we were ill-prepared to go any further. Yeah, we did. We we immediately knew that we had bitten off more than we could chew, and we did not push ourselves. We didn't get hurt or put any of us in any danger. Yes. And we just had a nice little time. Very scenic drive. (laughs) And we got to share space with condors. We didn't see the condors, but we were at least... In their house, basically. We <laughs> sure. shared space with them. We were nearby. Maybe that's all all we need. Awesome. Shouldn't we all be peacefully sharing space with animals more often, I yes. think? And that's the California condor. Well, thanks, baby. Thank you. Thank you for, for giving me extra space this week. Because I was going through this and I was like, there were so many things that I really wanted to dive into and I couldn't skimp on any of it. And so I had to come ask you to be like, please let me spend extra time talking. I I think that was the right call. (laughs) Glad. (laughs) And thank you, dear listener, for bearing with us and trusting the process. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you learned something today. If you uh, liked what you heard, we would love it if you could leave us a good review on your podcast app of choice. If you have an animal you'd like to hear us talk about on the show, please email them to me at ellen at justthezooofus.com. We'd like to thank Maximum Fun, our network, for having us on along with the other incredible shows on the network, like the ones that you heard promos for here earlier. If you want to learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting us and all of the other amazing shows on the network, head over to MaximumFun.org. And finally, we would like to thank Louis Zong for our bop and theme music.
you couldn't put the condor into the theme music because they actually don't have a syrinx so they cannot produce uh sounds with okay. they don't have a vocal organ to produce any sounds with they can only hiss it'd be a flappy sound maybe that's true you could do like maybe a wing because i bet when those things take off you probably hear it you probably feel it <laughs> <laughs> it sends a shock wave <laughs> This will probably be the last time uh, for a, a little bit of time that you hear cr- from Christian until we get all settled in to mm-hmm. our new place. But We're going on a great journey. We are going on a wonderful, epic journey. But the next time you hear from Christian, we'll be on the West Coast. That's true. Best coast, I'm, I'm told. <laughs> well, thank you, Christian. And thank you, dear listener. We'll catch you later. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.